This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome back. Here we are again for another bonus episode. As always, I'm your host, Avery Kreiwald, with Innovating a Bright Future. And this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. So far, these bonus episodes this season have been pretty focused on the systemic changes that we have to make in order for the positive impacts to trickle down to broader society and create change on the largest scale possible. In a way, this episode is pretty similar in that we're going to discuss a large-scale problem that requires systemic change and collective action and all the like in order to solve it completely. At the same time, I think this episode will be a good bit of consumer education and discuss ways that, even at this stage, with the options that are available, we can make good climate decisions on the individual level and by doing so, create more demand for climate-conscious choices and create that ever-important feedback loop that we're always talking about. This week's topic is sustainable textiles. Textiles have come up numerous times on this podcast because they're kind of important, so let's refresh all of our memories on what exactly a textile is. Textile can refer to either some sort of fabric, like a type of woven cloth, or it can refer to the industry of cloth manufacturing. For our purposes, it's probably better to take the first definition, but because they're so similar, it doesn't matter too much. Now obviously, just from this description, we know that these are used absolutely everywhere and will continue to be used everywhere throughout the conceivable future. That's what makes them so important to focus on here, because it is categories like textiles, food, water, transportation, housing, and energy that simply won't go away. No matter what happens, and no matter how bad food production or textile manufacturing or energy production impacts our climate situation, at no point can we just stop using them. They are a necessity, and as such, they must be made an utmost priority to decarbonize so that our essentials of life are at least for the most part free of climate impact across the globe. This is also one of the categories where there are a lot of more climate-friendly options becoming available all the time. Where housing and energy lend themselves well to collective political and societal action, organizing and demanding accountability and action from those in power, there's not a lot of options available for the individual. If you want to build a house, you might be able to find contractors willing to work with more sustainable building materials and methods But at the end of the day, there hasn't been enough development in the construction sector to make any significant change to the climate cost of building a house. Energy is the same. If you're taking energy off of the grid, not including local generation, which as we've discussed previously is a great solution, there are very few methods of choosing an energy source that may be more sustainable. The same is true for water, though it doesn't generally have a high climate impact and it can be difficult to generate water locally. Food, transportation, and textiles are different because they offer consumer options. Accompanied by widespread collective action in the form of political and societal action, individuals have the power to make choices regarding who they buy from and where our products come from. Because of that, we're given even more options to take collective and individual action to push for sustainability and climate progress. The most striking and obvious of these expanded options is of course the boycott, but we will get to that in a little bit. Before we talk about how we can solve the problem, we have to establish what the problem is. 
So let's take a look at some of the processes behind textile production and where we're producing large amounts of greenhouse gases and other environmental irritants that we can work to minimize. But before we get into the production side of things, I want to start with the most obvious and prominent problem in the textile industry, especially Western societies. A good portion of the environmental impacts from this industry come from the end of life of products. We will talk more about those specific environmental impacts in a minute, but I want to get this out of the way first. In relation to the fashion industry, a large part of the textile industry, the biggest problem is waste. In this section, waste refers not to the byproducts of production, or what is left over and not used. Instead, it refers to products falling short of their lifetime potential, throwing things out before they've contributed all that they can. Clothes that get worn a couple of times before they are disposed of in good condition. The reason that this is so impactful is, like I said, textiles are fundamental to society, and so to some extent, the climate impact is inevitable. But if you only get a quarter of the possible use out of the product, the climate impact of that product is essentially multiplied by a factor of four. So while there are serious other problems associated with textiles, and there are also other very important solutions to lessen the climate impact of this sector, if you take one thing away from this episode, reduce textile waste. Wear your clothes longer, wear your clothes until they wear out, and if you absolutely refuse to continue wearing them, do something with them that is not throwing them away. When textiles aren't reused, recycled, or upcycled in a way that prolongs the life of these materials, they end up in landfills, and their presence is far from negligible. The annual rates of textiles being thrown into landfills before end of life vary from country to country, with Western countries having higher rates than others. The US has a rate of nearly 30 kilograms of textiles entering landfills per year per person. When textiles end up in the landfill, they typically follow two different pathways of degradation. On one side, natural fibers like wool, cotton, and linen are biodegradable, which is in some ways a good thing, as the products can functionally disintegrate back into the earth. However, the processes that go into breaking down natural fibers are climate intensive and produce various greenhouse gases, mostly carbon dioxide and methane. The processes that actually go into biodegradation are beyond my capability to teach in a way that would make any sense, but at the end of the day, a lot of harmful greenhouse gases are produced. Synthetic textiles, on the other hand, which are produced by humans through various manufacturing techniques, make up the majority of clothing sales across the world at this point. That's mainly due to the pricing being much lower, because the raw materials are more available, and the fact that synthetic fibers are more versatile due to weight, water resistance, heat resistance, and elasticity. Unfortunately, part of the reason these materials are so cheap is the feedstock for products often comes directly from fossil fuel byproducts, which are a significant driving factor in the continued use of fossil fuels. But we'll get deeper into that later. When in landfill, due to the chemical and physical nature of synthetic products, Synthetic textiles almost never completely break down. There are no bacteria sources present in soils that are capable of converting clothes back into growable soil in the same way that natural fibers do. Instead, most synthetic fibers simply sit in landfills until they're mechanically broken down by wind, water, and contact with other waste to the point that they can escape the landfill. When this happens, plastics are either blown away into the wind 
or can leak into the ground with hazardous chemicals. While some of these plastics will end up on the streets or floating through countryside air, and some even in human water sources, the majority of plastics overwhelmingly end up in the ocean. While landfill-sourced plastics are far down the list of causes of ocean plastic pollution, it is still a factor, and coupled with the many other contributing factors, it's estimated that plastics in the ocean will likely outweigh fish by the year 2050. Plastics in the ocean in turn harm wildlife and make their way into the food chain. Even if you don't care about the million-plus marine animals that die every year from plastic consumption, Keep in mind that those that die are not the only ones consuming plastics. Animals that eat plastic, or even absorb plastics on a microscopic level like phytoplankton, end up with plastics in their tissues, which is then consumed by predators, and that plastic is passed up through the food chain. This continues happening until all levels of the food chain are heavily saturated with plastics in their tissues. This is a phenomenon called biomagnification, and it's not unique to plastics, and is also present in other materials like heavy metals. Eventually, biomagnification results in almost all the seafood caught for human consumption also being contaminated by ocean plastics, coming full circle and biomagnifying us. It's not a great outcome. As I said, landfill waste is not the primary driver of this impending disaster, but all of these things are connected, and contribute to the problem nonetheless. To prevent all of these impacts that come from textile waste, the most effective thing to do is reduce waste. Don't throw out wearable clothes. In many cases, don't throw out clothes that you deem unwearable, because odds are, someone considers them wearable, or they can be reused or recycled to lengthen their lifespan. Clothing donations are accepted by a variety of charitable organizations and nonprofits, who I will link in the show notes if you need a place to start. Hand down clothes to younger generations in your family, especially if the problem is the fit, or bring your unwanted clothes to thrift stores. None of these methods guarantee that your unwanted clothes will fulfill the rest of their intended life cycle, but they give a much better chance of making that happen. Another problem that is very related to landfill waste that I do want to touch on briefly before we move on is microplastics from laundry. By recent studies, it appears that microplastics from laundering your clothes is not only one of the largest contributors to microplastic pollution, but plastic pollution in general. When you wash synthetic fibers, the detergent you use to wash your clothes intentionally loosens the fibers to aid in cleaning. The only problem is this allows tiny pieces of plastic, too small for the human eye to even see, to shed off of your clothes and into the wastewater, where, yes, it probably ends up in the ocean. There aren't adequate filtration systems for microplastics, even at the industrial wastewater treatment level, so these plastics usually either pass straight through to the ocean or end up back in a water supply. Obviously, it's not exactly feasible to not wash your clothes, but if you want to do what you can to prevent this, first of all, buy natural fibers, which we will continue elaborating on later. Second, practice responsible washing. Use cold water if you can, and use less detergent, switching it out for a less chemically intense blend if you can. Alright, so if you don't do that, what happens? Let's talk impacts. What environmental impacts does the textile industry embody? Where do those impacts come from, and how can they best be prevented? 
Well, we kind of started at the end of the story by discussing end of life. So let's go back to the beginning and see what it costs to make clothes, which is the other main source of environmental degradation caused by the textile industry. Since there's not a ton of maintenance for clothes, production and end of life are the two most impactful sectors, besides the laundry, which kind of counts as maintenance, I guess. So, textile production. As mentioned at the top of the episode, it's not going to stop anytime soon. Barring some seriously sci-fi tech advancements or radical cultural revisions, we will need clothes and other fabric solutions for as long as humans roam this great planet that we call home. The trick to fixing textile production is reducing impact. Right now, there is basically no good option for textile production. There are better options and worse options, but it's hard to call any of the pathways of production sustainable. So let's start with the better option, natural fibers. Natural fibers come directly from a plant or animal source. Cotton, wool, and linen all fall under this category. The first step of natural textile production is the harvest of fiber. This is basically the raw material of clothing, the iron ore that will be shaped into a shirt or a pair of pants or whatever tentry item your heart desires. This process varies greatly between fiber sources, but it's generally a pretty impactful portion of the manufacturing process. For example, cotton production has a similar impact to agriculture, large amounts of water alongside chemicals like fertilizers and pesticides or herbicides that are used to maximize yield. After that, agricultural machines harvest the cotton fiber from the plant. Like agriculture, the largest impact comes from water and chemical use. Wool is sourced from sheep, so the harvesting of wool is subject to similar environmental impacts as sheep farming for food. As with all animal farming, soil degradation, overgrazing, and land use are the biggest environmental impacts, though sheep have much less GHG emissions than cows, and because they're primarily farmed for wool in this case, they can live a lot longer than slaughter animals typically do, which at least somewhat reduces their impact. Cotton and wool are both quite dirty when harvest, relative to the final product that's actually used for clothes manufacturing. As such, they must be scored, which is a process that removes impurities that are mostly invisible to the naked human eye. This includes residual oils, chemicals, and other contaminants that are present in the fiber after harvesting. This generally requires quite a few detergents to release the contaminants from the material, and it requires a wash process, which takes a lot of water. That is a running theme with this industry. The water requirements and the resulting effluent are the biggest climate impacts of production. After these aqueous treatment processes, the water is usually pretty heavily contaminated with a variety of entities. Often, this wastewater ends up in treatment plants, where it can be treated, but that process of course takes energy and more chemical inputs. In countries where industries like this are less regulated or still developing, however, it's not uncommon for large amounts of waste effluent to end up in primary water sources like rivers, which is extremely unhealthy both for humans and the environment. Linens, which are typically made of the stalks of plants like flax or hemp, have a lower water footprint than that of cotton because they generally don't require as heavy scoring processes as cotton and wool. Instead, they undergo something called water retting. Retting is most basically soaking fibers in water to allow the fibers to soften from a combination of the water and bacteria present in it. After retting, 
The process becomes similar enough to cotton and wool that for the purposes of time in this episode, we will treat all three as synonymous natural fibers for the remainder of the episode. After the fibers are mostly clean, they need to be bleached to remove the natural coloring and prepare the fibers for artificial dyeing. The bleaching and dyeing processes are some of the most impactful parts of manufacturing. They both require immense amounts of water to wash the clothes in bleach, and then wash the clothes again and again in water and other detergents to remove residual bleach. Similarly, after fibers have been bleached and then washed, they're dyed and then washed again, which uses another huge quantity of water that ends up as contaminated effluent. Often, when the environmental impact of the textile industry is discussed, it centers primarily on these two processes, but also includes the scoring stage as well. That's because these portions of the manufacturing process are so water-intensive. In developing nations, where industry is just getting started over the last couple of decades, and largely remains poorly regulated, water is a huge problem. The almost inconceivable amounts of water used for textile production is a commodity in many places, and it can be argued that drinking water sources should be prioritized. Similarly, because of poor regulations and enforcement, wastewater from textile production is regularly poorly treated or not treated at all, instead funneling back into water sources like rivers and lakes. This further spoils what could be drinking water for the many citizens who struggle to find safe water, especially in industrial areas of developing nations. Excessive pollution of waterways by dyes, bleaches, and other chemicals used in textile manufacturing kills aquatic animals that could be harvested for food and prevents the use of waterways for human use of any kind, not only drinking water but also washing clothes, bathing, and food production-related uses like irrigation. The dyeing process is especially inefficient in this regard, and is largely regarded as one of the most important factors to address when considering how to limit the environmental impact of the textile industry. The problem is, unlike most industrial processes across the world, textile dyeing has hardly changed since the dawn of industry, and it works like this. Most often, fibers are placed in a large vat, which is filled with aqueous dyes, coloring mixed with water, and other chemicals to help the color stay in the fabric longer. In order for the color to stay in the fat, in order for the color to stay in the fibers, the solution is heated to allow for better chemical reactions between the solution and the fiber. Clothes are then removed from the vat, where they then go to be washed of residual dye and left only with the permanent coloring. The vat full of dye is usually used more than once, but the water from the clothes wash goes to the water treatment or straight out into primary water sources, depending where it happens. This process produces ridiculous amounts of contaminated water and also consumes large amounts of energy for the mechanical and thermal processes involved. That's where the majority of greenhouse gases come from. The energy and heat required to carry out the processes of manufacturing which comes to total an estimated 8% of total global emissions yearly, according to the UN. Because of the size of the issue in this section of textile production, aqueous treatments, especially bleaching and dyeing, is the part of the process that most environmental action is being focused on. Before the treated fibers can move on to yarn manufacturing, they're usually finished with other chemicals, 
which can either be integrated into the dyeing process or added after the dyeing process, but in a mechanically similar fashion to the dyeing and bleaching processes. Finishing typically adds certain chemicals that help with the resilience of fabrics, adding water resistance, stain resistance, or any other adjective that you might see on the tag of a shirt. When that's finished, you end up with fabrics that are ready to undergo the process of being turned into actual clothes. The first stage, once you get past the aqueous treatments, is blowing. This one is pretty simple, and mechanisms rule this step. Through a variety of mechanical processes that each have their own complex machine, which I don't have time to delve into, bales of treated fiber are opened, cleaned again, but without water, and are then fluffed up and mixed with other fibers. Eventually, the end product of this section should be a relatively uniformly distributed fabric that can then move on to the next step. Most natural fabrics require processes called carding and combing, which are similar processes that achieve slightly different objectives. Combing is a method of treating fibers that is exactly what it sounds like, very similar to combing your hair. This process removes impurities along with shorter strands and straightens the remaining longer threads so that they're parallel to one another. Carding is a slightly less structured method which removes all impurities but doesn't extract the shorter threads, instead leaving them in to form a more fluffy material to work with. Without getting into too many of the details, because oh my there's a lot of details, once straightened and sorted through with carding and combing, it's onto spinning. I don't even remotely understand the different methods and steps to each form of yarn spinning, so let it suffice to say that the fibers, which at this point are in a frizzy kind of sheet form, go through a bunch more machines that straighten and twist and wind the given fabric into something called yarn. At this point, yarn can be used to begin the fabric manufacturing process, turning what is effectively a spool of string into materials that can be worked with to form clothing itself. Almost all of the steps following the aqueous treatments are carried out by machines, which obviously consume energy. That's where some of the greenhouse gases from textile production come from, but compared to the aqueous treatment stage, there is minimal environmental impact other than energy use. Similarly, yarn is then taken and turned into apparel-ready fabric via a couple of different manufacturing methods. Weaving is exactly what it sounds like, over, under, over, under, only thousands of times to form a uniform sheet. The alternative most commonly used is knitting, which is more suited to hand production as opposed to large-scale machining. There are, of course, probably hundreds of variations on both of these techniques that can turn a spool of yarn into any pattern imaginable, but come on, I'm so far out of my depth already in this episode that I don't even know what's going on anymore. I think if I tried to explain each type of weave and knit pattern, my brain might just melt out of my ears. So, skipping that, after the yarn is formed into some kind of fabric, that fabric has to be transformed into something that you can wear. The steps in this process are even longer, but I think most of them should be kind of self-explanatory and not super relevant to the climate conversation, so I'm going to try and run through them quick. Let's go. A design comes from a company, which is transformed into a pattern, which is basically a blueprint for the pieces of a garment. That blueprint is used to cut out patterns in fabric sheets, which can be done using machines or manual labor. Those fabric puzzle pieces are then assembled, usually by hand, before being printed with any designs, packaged up, and shipped out. That's the natural fiber production line, 
a lot of water, chemical and energy use near the beginning of the process, followed by some energy requirements in machining later on, but a diminishing environmental impact as the process goes along. Let's check out the synthetic pathway. It should be noted that with the rise of fast fashion, alongside increasing fossil fuel usage across the world, the synthetic fiber market saturation has skyrocketed in recent years, making up well over half of the world total apparel production material. And that brings us to the biggest and most climate relevant difference between natural and synthetic fibers. Synthetic fibers all come from fossil fuel sources. For the sake of simplicity for both me and you, polyester is the most common textile in the world, synthetic or not. So most of this information pertains to polyester, which is a synthetic material, although it generally implies to other synthetics as well. So instead of harvesting from cotton plants or shaving sheep, Synthetic fibers come from processes involving fossil fuel inputs. For polyester, ethylene glycol enters the process and is then reacted with a chemical called dimethylterephthalate under very high heat. I don't know much about either of those chemicals, but both come from the processing of fossil fuels for petroleum and oil. After the chemicals are reacted, forming organic polymers, which are long strings of molecules, the resulting plastic is melted again and then strung out under high temperature and pressure into yarns that are used in an almost identical way to that of natural fibers. Of course, the synthetic yarns also require heavy bleaching and dyeing which add a lot of water and energy use to the environmental impact of the product before undergoing similar fabric and apparel manufacturing steps. This process line mostly avoids the scoring and spinning stages Instead, synthetic yarns sometimes require reheating to be stretched out further, but don't require the same mechanisms as natural fibers do to concentrate the frizzy fibers into a coherent string. So, how does it compare? Well, it comes from fossil fuels, and that could be the end of the discussion there. It's not going to be, but it could be, because the manufacturing of synthetic fibers inevitably adds to the demand for fossil fuel mining, refining, and use which is something that our world simply can't afford at this stage. On top of that, the energy consumption of synthetic fibers is extreme, and produces about triple the carbon emissions as cotton fibers do, totaling almost 300 billion tons a year, which is literally an incomprehensible number for the human brain. As already discussed, the dyeing process for all textiles, including synthetics, is terrible for humans and the environment, but especially bad for synthetics. This is because only synthetic dyes, which are even more difficult to break down and toxic to humans and animals, can bond with synthetic fibers. Right now, most textile manufacturing uses synthetic dyes anyways, but it's a requirement for synthetic fibers, whereas with proper environmental planning, natural dyes can be substituted in the case of natural fibers, so there's more room for action when using natural fibers. And we've already talked about the dangers of microplastics, which are exclusive to synthetic fibers, since natural fibers don't have plastics to wash into the water supply to begin with. And we've also talked about the dangers of disposing of synthetic fibers, which usually consists of throwing clothes into a landfill and shrugging for the next two centuries until the plastic finally breaks down. So none of this sounds super great, right? To recount, buy natural fibers to prevent what environmental damage you can from the production of synthetic fibers. And second, 
wear or donate or reuse or recycle your clothes until they are absolutely destroyed and unwearable. Even when the clothes are unwearable to you, there are often alternative pathways to landfill to look into first. We're going to delve into solutions now, but those are the main two that you can do. This sector is a weird blend of consumer-centric and requiring heavy collective action. The things that we're about to talk about are definitely something that you can contribute to through advocacy, political, and activist action, but those two actions I just mentioned are things that you can practice every day of your life to make a difference and reduce your impact as much as possible. As such, I would really recommend that you do them as much as possible. Before moving on from that point, while buying sustainable is better than buying unconsciously, the real solution is buying less and using more, as has been the running theme of this episode. Here's a quote from Professor Pham at the Pratt Institute. It's cliché to say that we can't shop our way out of a climate catastrophe, but it's absolutely true. The popular emphasis on individuals knowing where their clothes are made and who made their clothes, as ways of buying better, obscures the reality that the problems with the global fashion industry aren't individual bad brands that just need to be called out. The problems are structural and systemic. So yes, when you absolutely need a new pair of pants, look for the secondhand items, and failing that, buy from brands that have a solid reputation as at least more sustainable than the competitors. At the same time, keep in mind that, like many climate issues, the solutions need large-scale change and action from regulatory bodies and governments, which happen because you make it known that you care. So, with around 2,700 liters of water required for each t-shirt and almost 10% of global GHGs, alongside dyes, and microplastics flooding our ecosystems and communities, what can we do to change this? Before we end this episode, we're going to take a look at some processes that could change the way we create our clothing. One method of reducing the quantity of both energy and dye used in the dyeing process is through the use of ultrasonic baths while dyeing. I read a couple of very in-depth papers about this for the episode, but to be honest, even the theory behind it is beyond my understanding, and the math might as well be hieroglyphics for how well I can understand it. Ultrasonic baths basically use ultrasonic waves, who could have guessed, to agitate the water in the bath, producing tiny, and I mean like tiny tiny, air bubbles in the water that then implode. This creates what is functionally an extremely turbulent bath, but on the nano scale. For dyeing, it seems to me that on a very general level, by using an ultrasonic bath, microscopic bubbles are created within the fabric and then implode, effectively pushing the dye solution into and out of the fabric much faster than if it were to just sit in the bath. This process requires less heat input in order for the dye to permeate and remain in the fabric, and it also requires less time in the bath, producing less concentrated effluent when washed. This is because most of the dye that remains in the fabric after being pulled out will remain permanently entrenched and doesn't come out in the wash process. One option being explored to tackle the consistent increases in synthetic demand is biopolymers, which are materials that have the same or very similar traits to synthetics, but are sourced from natural means instead of fossil fuels. Some examples of biopolymer sources are spider silk, seaweed fiber, starches like potatoes and wheat, and some microorganisms. 
The processes behind the production and use of biopolymers is even more over my head than the ultrasonic processes, so it's just something to keep in mind, and it seems like a fascinating industry to work in if that's something you want to do, I just don't understand it at this point. Finally, there is the use of bioscoring as an alternative to the traditional scoring techniques which use high quantities of alkaline chemicals. Bioscoring substitutes enzymes instead of those alkalines, which effectively achieves the same goal but with reduced water and heat usage. Bioscoring also produces less contaminants in effluent, which of course reduces the impact of that effluent on the environment and the cost of treating the wastewater. Fabrics that go through the bioscoring process are typically softer and more receptive to dyes as opposed to chemical scoring, which can also reduce the dye requirements. All of these technologies are currently up and coming and are seeing more technical demonstrations as time goes on. This leads to more adoption in textile production lines, which is a good thing. The goal now is to simply speed up that process, getting more sustainable practices to the forefront of textile production, which is something that you can do through our favorite collective action. Buy from brands that support the right ideas, support politicians who have the same goals, and advocate for more environmental regulation in the textile industry. While this is by no means the whole story of the textile industry, and we didn't even talk about the human rights issues associated with it, that's all that I have time for in this episode. I definitely didn't go all the way down the rabbit hole, but I didn't expect it to be this deep, honestly. It turns out this was a pretty complex one, with a whole bunch of layers and technologies, and the vast majority of it I still don't understand, even after all the research I've done for this one. If you made it all the way through, Congrats and thank you. I know this was a long one, and I hope you can walk away with something new from this episode. The textile industry is extremely pertinent, and it's not going away, so it's a field that we need to keep up to date on. It's also a huge industry, and something that you definitely can enter as a career if that's something you're interested in, and it's a good way to get involved in making a change to a heavily polluting industry. Thank you for being here once again, there's only a couple of episodes left, so enjoy the last bits of this season, and give us some feedback if there's anything you want to talk about. We check all of our social media regularly, so if you have something to say, don't hesitate to reach out. As always, links in the show notes for more information and ways to get involved, alongside our Patreon if you want to support the show. That's all for today, take care of yourself, stay innovative, and I'll see you next time.